Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Okay, so Chris, you are, you've been teaching, you've been, you, didn't you switch your class, like what you're taught, what you're teaching about since we all got locked down? I've been teaching a class uh, this semester. It's the capstone seminar in my department. So this is for, you know, mostly juniors and seniors. It's a kind of research intensive seminar. And um, the topic is early modern violence, uh, the intersection of art and early modern violence. This comes out of another sort of joint research project that I'm working on called uh, Gun Violence and Its Histories. And not really been a, a topic of research for me until the last two years. And I really wanted to to kind of get into teaching what it meant to, to work on questions of the intersection of art and violence. And so we did early in the semester in January, we worked a little bit on the question of miracle working images and how one really good source where you can learn about uh, violence is actually in tales or recordings of miracles that were affected by by icons. So we tend to think of, and, and I'll get here in just a second, but we tend to think of images, especially with regard to illness, um, plague being one major category of illness. But the original way that miracle working images were fitting into my class was related to things like firearms and uh, interpersonal violence with knives and things like that. So you see a lot of notarized miraculous healings associated with images where say somebody, there's one really great miracle that is associated with one of the cults that I work on where there were two guys gambling in a, in a osteria. So in a wine bar and one of them loses at cards and he stands up and he pulls out a, a handgun and is about to shoot the guy across the table from him, you know, at close range. And the man who is about to be shot turns his 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 heart and mind to the Madonna dell'Arco in Naples and the gun misfires. And this is a miraculous intervention that is notarized and recorded in Naples. When you say notarized, what do you mean by that? Like, it's necessary to have witnesses and things? Yeah, so miracle tales in this period, especially in Italy, are highly regulated by both church and civic authorities. And so every officially recognized miracle has to be recorded by a notary. So this particular miracle took place somewhere in Puglia. So we're talking, you know, 150 miles away or something. Um, and so the gentleman makes his way to Naples and he presents himself in the church and he brings witnesses with him. And this is all written down by someone who is, a, you know, an officially recognized government notary. So these have a kind of force of, of truth behind them within a, within a legal framework. And so these stories become really useful for, for tracking what are the societal problems that people are facing? Because when uh, you don't have a lot of remedies, things like a strong municipal police department or antibacterial drugs, you know, people are making recourse to miracle working images, to God through miracle working images on a daily basis. And so we have the, these, these registers of, of sometimes really intense and personal 
records of what what they're concerned about, what they're preoccupied about. And there's some really sometimes movingly personal material contained in these in these stories. So that was how this material got into my class, you know, back in January and February. And we were supposed to spend most of the month of March and April looking at early modern images of guns, basically. Once the COVID lockdown happened, I sort of had to rethink what was possible. We were supposed to be in the University Art Gallery at Pitt looking at artworks, actually, you know, uh, etchings and engravings from the 17th century. That's no longer possible. So what do we do to to sort of try to make up for that experience? There is no no digital surrogate for looking at an original work of art, but how could we make make lemonade out of lemons, right? So what I did was was rethink a couple of weeks worth of the syllabus. And so this past week, what we were focusing on was images and the plague and how miracle working images have been invoked in Italian culture at different moments in its history in response to all of the the societal and and devotional impact that a pandemic has you know it's it's one of those really interesting frightening but also enlivening moments when things that i have studied for a very long time take on an immediacy and a potency and become palpable to me in ways that they were not before. So maybe I can, you know, show you a couple of, of images and we can, we can talk through some of the stuff that, that, that has been really interesting and, and powerful to me over the last week or two. Does that sound yeah, good? Yeah. I mean, well, so uh, maybe before you do, would it make sense to talk about Boccaccio and the Decameron? Oh, or yeah. Is that yeah. part and parcel of the images? Because, you know, I've been talking to other colleagues this week about the bubonic plague, um, yeah. but mostly in the English context. Yeah. And Boccaccio's Decameron is, its frame narrative is wealthy Florentines uh, escaping the city for their country villas having a summer vacation to get away from the plague, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was actually the very first thing we read in my class. Thank you for reminding me of this. Because we, one of the things that I wanted to set up for the students, and which seemed a little more difficult in January than it is now, was to pull them back into a mindset where life is is a more precarious proposition than it is today where death is a part of life. You know, when we, when you start looking into the way that people have lived and died throughout history, you know, the modern period, whenever that begins, but let's, let's call it a sort of 20th century period for the purposes of what I'm about to say. When you look at death rituals, you know, it largely happened in the context of the home through most of history. And now in the 20th century, you know, we send with the medicalization of death, we send people into hospitals and at the end of life and they don't come out. And, and we think about the end of life as a process that is kind of staged and choreographed by an entire medical industry. And so one of the things that I wanted to do by reading Boccaccio uh, in a class that's about violence was to just kind of pull them into a mind space where the notion of the end of life is actually less predictable than it is today. Boccaccio's, uh, the, the prologue to the, or the author's preface to the, to the Decameron is not really about violence in any way, but it is about the ubiquity of death. 
And one of the questions that I asked my students in January was, you know, what were some of the things that that hit you in this text? And Boccaccio writes really movingly about the the sense of just total breakdown of society. So as he says, the family unit ceases to work. Mothers are no longer looking after their children. Children are no longer looking after their, their elderly parents. Brother and sister are no longer caring for one another because they are all looking out for themselves and trying to survive this, this plague, right? Which, as we know, killed maybe as much as half of the population. And as he describes, one of the most difficult elements for the survivors was the fact that rituals of remembrance came to an end. There were just too many funerals for there to be any genuine mourning, for there to be any genuine grieving. I well, so I just wanted to add. I I recently was reading a Florentine uh, chronicler who was contemporary with Boccaccio, and he said about the burial practices during the plague time that there would be these mass trenches dug and they would throw in a layer of bodies and then they would cover that over with a layer of dirt and then another layer of bodies and he said as if they were making a lasagna wow <laughs> wow what an image huh yeah well and 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 uh they're constantly searching for for literary figures that will help render the idea and that's a really powerful one wow Boccaccio describes that that kind of piling up of bodies. You know, he says that the the least fortunate in Florentine society became what were known as undertakers, and this is a kind of new concept at the time. And he says, you know, they would they would take apart a door and they would have a plank of wood, and one would be carrying it at the front end, and one would be carrying it at the back. And they'd go to a house where they knew there was going to be a plague victim. They'd put the plague victim on there, and they'd start walking toward the the cemetery, and they would be stopped by other households that had bodies to, to pile onto this thing. So, you know, and before you know it, you have a procession, an anonymous procession of bodies going to be turned into this kind of graveyard lasagna. And all of this was, was really moving to me in January. I've read it before, but it really struck me as I was reading this, this, this text, but not for its contemporary relevance. And I was working really hard with my students to try to get them to understand how how society, what it must feel like at a moment of having society come apart at the seams. And I remember asking them very clearly at the end of, of I guess it would have been our second day of class, it would have been the first discussion day, you know, if they have ever felt that society was coming apart. And after some prodding, I really got them to, to kind of realize, like, and I was frankly kind of surprised that they've never had a sense that, that of the contingency of society. I think you and I probably have the lived experience of 9-11 that we share, and that day, that week being just this moment when uncertainty reigned and a whole lot of things that you had never thought possible were all of the sudden possible. And for and previous generations... before and after... Yeah. And they didn't have this. So the first, the very first thing that I did for the post COVID class was we actually went back and we reread Boccaccio 
And uh, I asked them to write reflections on, you know, the sort of temporality of reading Boccaccio in January versus reading Boccaccio in, I guess that would have been late March. And all of the sudden, you know, certain things like the piling up of bodies became really palpable for them. We had just that week seen images in in the newspapers coming out of the city of Bergamo, which has been one of the hardest hit cities in, in Italy. It's a city that I know and love. Uh, it's got a great museum. It's got a lot of wonderful paintings by Titian, the guy about whom I wrote my first book. And, you know, they, they, they literally, they could not process the bodies fast enough. So the, the, the Italian military had to send, I think it was 17, you know, big army trucks up there to, to gather bodies and move them to locations farther South where they're, where they could be, be processed. And this is just something that we are not used to seeing, right? We, as I said, we've got this kind of choreographed end of life thing that happens in various cities and, and the idea that the bureaucracy cannot keep up with mortality. It's a really disconcerting feeling to see that. And so I think for the students, you know, all of the sudden, this text that is from, you know, 1351 and probably felt hundreds of years old the very first time that they read it, all of a sudden spoke to them in a very different way. And that was a kind of shocking moment at which history folded on itself. And one began to feel the permanence of certain elements of the human condition. One began to be able to relate to why this guy Boccaccio felt it so necessary to sit down and write, you know, a thousand pages of stories of, you know, nuns and, and monks cavorting and merchants going off to the Near East and the Far East and here and there. And, you know, it, it's, it's an element of diversion, right? You know, he's providing the Netflix of the 14th century. And also, he really is feeling, when you read that preface, he's feeling the I don't want to psychologize it too much. I don't want to call it survivor's guilt, but the sense of genuinely questioning, what did we go through? What was that? And how do we make sense of the fact that in 1345, I loved my family and I could count on my family being there for me. And in 1350, all of a sudden, the family's a unit again and everybody's working together and we love one another and we're not going to abandon one another. But there was this period in between those years where even something is firmly rooted in human existence as the family, became provisional, became something that you had to think about. And this is something, too, that a lot of us are struggling with. You know, I, my family is, you know, on the other side of the country in Arizona and thinking about how much I would like to see them right now, but also realizing that traveling to see them is actually counterproductive to the public health. And, and, and so it Reading a, a something like Boccaccio or Chaucer, I think, starts to allow us to to think on the period that we're living in that is deeply uncomfortable for all of us, but in a way that is actually standing outside of the idiom of a 24-hour news cycle, of Twitter, of, you know, trying to find... Uh, I'm very glad that there are doctors trying to find a... a, a a cure for this, but, you know, hearing about the incremental steps, 
what Boccaccio, Chaucer, Petrarch, all of these authors who who were writing in the aftermath of the of the Black Death, what they convey to us is something of the mystery of what it means to survive, the challenge that you feel and the, that is incumbent upon you as a survivor. And what did that reveal to us about the things we took for granted for, from life? So there's also an art historical, or I mean, an artistic response, right? So not just literary, we have people then making images. Yeah. Can you show us some pictures? Yeah, and there is a there is a real you know there's a long literature about art in the in the wake of the of the Black Death. This has been highly contested. There was a in the sort of you know 20th century there was a lot of conversation about whether or not style had really changed. I'm a lot less interested in that than I am in thinking about how the the responses that we see come to impact the role that images can play as a kind of, as a point of unification for a society. So what we're looking at here, Ryan, do you, what do you, what do you, what do you think this is? Do you know, have you ever seen this image before? We're going to play a little bit of, you know, art history teacher. (laughs) Yeah, no, I haven't seen it before. Um, I see a procession. Um, Yes. I see a, uh, a bishop, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the, not just any bishop though. The Bishop of Rome. Yes. With the papal tiara. tiara. Yes. And he is uh, sort of in the center of the image, but uh, he's holding another image. Yeah. Uh, He's holding an image, I imagine, of the Blessed Virgin. Mm Mm-hmm. And she has, she's wearing a white wimple. Uh, She's clothed in kind of maybe purple cloak, and she has her hands lifted above her shoulders with open palms as if they're almost reaching in fact it looks like one of them is reaching is, is outside of the, the frame, the frame of, yeah. of the of the image and yeah so this is going through a city we have like some city walls uh that they're wrapping around and there's an actually an angel with a sword at the top of the image sort of like stationed at the top of a parapet and he is either unsheathing or sheathing his sword. I'm not sure. Yeah. So this is a it's it's a really beautiful image. Um, I love this painting. It's in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, made by a Spanish artist from the Kingdom of Aragon sometime around the year 1500. Dating it is really hard. Is this a painting? Is it uh, because it looks it looks sort of like there's some relief going on there, like the papal tiara seems to jump out. This is kind of typical of what we might call or what is often called. I don't like really calling it this, but uh, what's often called the late Gothic style or a kind of, you know, pre-Renaissance style of painting. It actually continues well into the Renaissance. This is a painting from 1500. I think it's inarguable that we're in the Renaissance in Spain there. But what you're seeing there is a lot of plaster relief. So it is a flat surface for most of the picture, but then all of the gold relief that you see in the, the frame of the painting of the Virgin 
Scourge and the candlesticks uh, carried by the the two young boys, the two young uh, tonsured boys, the papal tiara, the halo around the the Pope, the cross at the head of the processional. All of those are done in a in a sort of light relief using a gesso that is laid down on the the picture surface and then covered in gold leaf. So there is actually you know it kind of pops off of the surface, and you've got to imagine with a candle-lit ecclesiastical setting how the refraction of light would have happened, because gold, of course, is you know really good at reflecting in a period when we don't have artificial lighting. And would this image have been in the the church in Sant'Angelo, or where? So, the, yeah. so this, where this was, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll have to check on that if we know exactly where it was. But it, it, it shows a story that is really um, central. So, what it is showing us is the story that is recorded that in the year 590, Pope Gregory the Great, there was a very bad plague, and he led a procession around the city carrying an icon. And as they processed basically, you know, around the city to the major basilicas, and they were coming to St. Peter, and as they were coming to Castel Sant'Angelo, St. Michael appeared on the parapet of Castel Sant'Angelo and sheathed his sword. And at that moment, the plague ceased. So this is a story that is recounted in, in the Liber Pontificalis and lots of other medieval sources. Interestingly, though, none of the really medieval sources talk about the use of an image. It's only with the emergence of the golden legend in the 13th century that we get the inclusion of an image. And the image that Gregory is reported to have carried around the city of Rome, by the 13th century, this this tradition has, has emerged that he used this icon, which is called the Salus Populi Romani. So this is in uh, the church of Santa Maria Maggiore, um, tradition holds that this was painted by St. Luke. It's actually a, you know, a, a Byzantine icon, really difficult to date in particular because it's been overpainted many times in its history. But from at least the 13th century, this ha- is considered one of the most important icons in Rome. It's carried on procession in commemoration of its role as the basically the health giver or, you know, the, the, the protector of the Roman people. And this becomes a really, really important image in the civic identity of papal Rome, right? So this becomes closely associated with uh, papal pilgrimages around the city. And as I said, it's, it's, it's taken on procession in different days. Here you, you see a different image, which is the Virgin of Araceli, which is, you know, in the, in the, the, the church of Araceli, which is at the top, uh, just sort of overlooking the Roman Forum. And she is another Byzantine icon that also in the 13th century and especially in the 14th century becomes hugely important. During the period of the, of the papal, the Avignon papacy, right? So when the papacy has left the city of Rome, the city government, the civic government becomes really important. And they turn to the Virgin of Araceli as their kind of plague protector. So she is the protector from the Black Death, actually. So we have this kind of interesting tradition in Rome of competing icons that are working to do, working to sort of save the people from, or, or, or as succor in moments of, of extreme, extreme danger from pandemic, from plague. Um, and there's a real kind of interesting history here that I don't want to get too deep into. 
What I want to just show you is a third image, which is a polychrome crucifix, which is now held in the Church of San Marcello al Corso. And this is a, again, it's really hard to date these images, right? Their, their origins are, are hidden a lot of times by sources because of the, the, the miraculous stories that surround them. But this was probably by either a North Italian or a German artist of the 14th century. It becomes really important because it survives a church fire at a certain point in the early uh, 1500s and it becomes sort of credited with, with, with special powers. And in the plague of 1522, once again, the Pope processes around with an image, this time with this image, and the, the plague comes to an end. Now, one of the things that I thought was really moving to talk about with my students over the last week was the benediction that Pope uh, Francis made, I guess, about 10 days ago now, yeah, um, his, the Orbi at Orbi. Right. And we're seeing right here, you have an image of of that event, with, and the, the Pope is there on the steps of uh, St. Peter's, and he has he's holding up a monstrance with the Blessed Sacrament in it, and he's flanked on his right side by a, a large life-size crucifix, and on his left side by the very icon, the one from Santa Maria Maggiore, right? Yeah. So we've the painted icon. It's it's this is uh, this has been a point of of some dispute. It seems like that is not the actual icon. The actual icon has been in under restoration, a very long restoration for for a while now, and it appears. Uh, although it, we're there have been a lot of conversations on Facebook and and various places about whether or not that is the actual icon. I think it is a pre modern copy, but that is that remains to be seen. But the image on the Pope's right, our left, is definitely the actual crucifix from San Marcello al Corso, and you can see here. I just did some screenshots of them uh, removing the the sculpture. So yeah, so the image that you showed earlier of this of this crucifix, it's it's not a two dimensional painting. It's it's a three dimensional. It's, it's a three dimensional sculpture. Sculpture, yeah. but in a frame. In a frame. And if you look at it straight on, like when we're looking at it here, it it could it could be a painting, and it has. Uh, the way it, the hands this... disappear behind the frame is is deceptive and somewhat strange, right? And it really is about framing it as a as an image, yeah, rather than as a sculpture. And this, you know, this sculpture has been used in jubilee years. It's it's usually brought to St. Peter's. Here you see John Paul II on uh, the the uh, Universal Day of Forgiveness uh, in the year two thousand, praying before it. So it's not. That it's never moved, but it was very exceptional. Um, Francis actually went early in March to San Marcello al Corso and prayed in front of the image. But as the uh, COVID epidemic turned into a pandemic, he decided that it would be an appropriate thing to bring it together with the Salus Populi Romani for the Urbi et Orbi uh, address and, and benediction. And so here you see a screenshot from uh, Vatican TV of him in veneration in front of either the copy or the original of the Salus Populi Romani. We'll try to get clarification on that. And then in front of San Marcello al Corso, uh, the crucifix of San Marcello al Corso. 
Oh, and there he is, actually kissing the the feet the of foot. Christ on, yes. the, on the crucifix. Yeah. And this benediction was really, I mean, I think even even those who, who, who might be skeptical of elements of the Catholic tradition had to find this a very moving moment. You know, this, if you've been to the, to the, to Piazza San Pietro, it is a ginormous, cavernous piazza in front of the church that can easily hold a hundred thousand people. And it was empty. And you had the lone silhouette of, of Francis in between the, the doors of St. Peter's, which are just so large and the columns so large. And then moving out onto the stage where he uh, actually conducted the event. And so you had the lone silhouette of this elderly man, you know, who is in terms of demographics, right in the bullseye of the, of the targeted population for this virus and calling on the, the full power of the tradition, right. Of the Salus Populi Romani of the crucifix of San Marcello al Corso. And it was this moment at which I think the, the power of miracle working images all of the sudden became legible to myself, to students, to other people with whom I've talked in a way that, that it never has been quite this legible for me. Whether or not one believes the, the notarized miracle stories, you know, is, is, there are plenty of people who, who evince skepticism about that. But what this address really drove home for me was the power of a sight, of a thing, of a shared object in which, as one of my students said, something where you can put your hope, you know, an object on which you can, you can, you can offload all of the hope and desire that you have for things to return to normal. And, and now, and now we have these photographic images that, you know, I think are circulating with a certain kind of iconic power. I mean, it, it's, you described so well the, you know, the, the image of Pope Francis silhouetted against this, this background. And he's all, you know, this is also happening seemingly at dusk. And so there are, there are lights on in St. Peter's Square and, and it's raining. So, you know, and he, he yeah. the only other lights you see, and you can see them sort of in the screenshot I've got back here, there are moving lights as he is doing the benediction and it's just dead silent. He's doing the cross sign with the, with the monstrance, but there are uh, lights at the opposite end of Piazza San Pietro from the police vehicles that are there that are basically upholding the blockade. And so as the dusk turns to night and these blue flashing lights at the other end of the, of the piazza echo the flickering lanterns that are, that are there sort of at his feet. Um, it was a really, I think, visually and emotionally powerful address. I think it was a, a moment at which the, the kind of gravity of the world's situation was choreographed in a way that, that it was, was admirable and that has not been done by any government or, or governmental body. There, the, the, you know, the urbi et orbi, you know, these are blessings and addresses to the city and to the world, right? And it's a kind of shocking moment to think about what it means to both address the world and address an empty piazza. It's a really, 
it's a it's a kind of charged paradox that is that is really i think interesting and powerful and that also you know fits within a longer tradition of thinking about miracle working images and the plague um already by the plague of 1630 so you you've got a an image here that shows the effects of the plague of 1630 in florence the plague of 1630 is one where we really begin to see them starting to understand contagion even if they don't have a germ theory yet even if they don't quite understand what an r naught is or a transmission vector or a mortality rate they have started to understand that having large masses of people together is not a good idea right and 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 for that reason this this was one of the last waves of the bubonic plague I think the last was around 1650. Um, so in Naples, in, in 1630, the, the present, your, your ability to go to these miracle working images was rigorously controlled by your name, by alphabet. So it was, I don't quite remember the, the way it worked, but depending on whether your name began with, you know, such and such letter, you could go on a Monday, a Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. And that was a way to keep the crowds at a minimum. Also because, you know, they're, they're, the mode of of interacting with these images is really corporeal. Um, Robert Orsi's book on oh oh dear, what's it called? 2016 book. It has presence in the title. I'll think of it in a moment. Speaks really movingly about the the, the corporeal power of Catholic devotion in times of of need. And so they were doing things like kissing and embracing these images, which we now understand you're shedding virus the entire time. And so they were trying to figure out how to prevent that, even if they didn't yet understand it. And so this is where, you know, Francis giving the Urbi et Urbi to an empty piazza becomes the kind of like end mark of Catholic devotion within an understanding of public health, right? Where, where you get this absolutely dramatic address to the entire world, but that is virtual. And of course, the beauty of the Catholic theology is that, you know, it's, it's, it can be virtual. It can be virtual. Exactly. The Eucharist, which is at the center of the, of his Urbi et Orbi benediction is precisely part of what makes the, the corpus mysticum possible. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about this in genealogies of modernity terms, at least iconographically, it's interesting that, you know, one of the major genealogies of modernity that, that, is in academic and then also increasingly in popular circles is is a secularization narrative where um you know as as the west uh or as the world approaches modernity as they become you know uh, participating in capitalism and consumerism and and the rise of the nation state and so on as progress is made it's no longer necessary to have religion or or to believe in god and so interestingly here we have we have a kind of visual icon in the emptiness of saint peter's square that would seem to express secularization um the you know the empty the naked naked square but in fact in many ways it's expressing the opposite it's expressing the the ongoingness of the power of the religious presence. Yeah. And it's calling on that 
tradition, right? It is drawing in a, in a way that I think is probably salutary from a standpoint of thinking about the limits of what it means to be a human being. It is calling on the lived experience of the generations who invested hope in images like the Salus Populi Romani and the uh, crucifix of San Marcello al Corso and, and insisting, right, that, yeah, we might have ventilators and antibiotics and, and uh, antihistamines and all of these wonderful things that can save the body. But part of what has happened is a forgetting of the fragility of human right. life. One of the great continuities across these passages to modernity is the vulnerability of the human condition. Exactly. And this is where I just, I, I thought that the, that that papal address was just a really st sort of stark and stunning moment when the material that I study, that I work on, you know, these, these miracle working images became, became palpable and, and understandable in a way that I, you know, I, I would never wish this, right? You know, I don't, you don't want a global pandemic to be the reason that some of your research becomes quote unquote relevant. But I do think it also does a, 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 a does afford to humanists, people like you and me who study, you know, who study history, who study what it means to have been human at different moments and what it, what that can tell us about what it means to be human now. It gives us a way to sort of think about the process of meaning making at this moment in, you know, the contemporary world. Where all of a sudden we realize that we're, we, we are, we are left with many of the same doubts that Chaucer had, that Boccaccio had. We are left with the same gaps in the certitude of what it means to be human that they were left with about the, the inviolability of the, of the family unit. All of these things that, that you and I have dedicated our lives to studying, I feel like, uh, they give us a different way to talk about this current pandemic that is not about virology, that is not about bending the curve. Although we are participating in social distancing, we're doing this remotely. I haven't seen you in person in months at this point. Um, but there's a way to, to, to think about the role that history plays in making sense of a, of an event like this. Yeah. And, and also, you know, we're, I think in a time like this, all of the technologies of the modern world no longer seem sufficient to supply the meaning that we need in life. You know, social media is, is not up to it anymore. And, uh, and so the, we're, we fall back on the resources that remain available to the, to us, one of which is art and narrative art. And, you know, in a combination of, of those two in film and streaming television. And, you know, the, the, it's been fascinating to, to read about the, the types of things that people are watching, the different types of solace that people are finding. And, you know, I've read a number of good, good pieces on, you know, the, the sort of, trade-offs and benefits of escapist uh, TV to, you know, compared to TV like The Leftovers that's about, uh, you know, the aftermath of, of a pandemic. So, yeah, and, and I think this, what this evinces is that, is that we have 
powerful resources for making meaning when we need to make meaning out of out of what's happening, but they're resources that that may, and at least in certain parts of our culture, have seemed unnecessary prior to this. Yeah, and and as you said, you know, the the technologies um, that we have. You know they really are amazing when you when you stop and think about the fact that you know had this happened twenty years ago, I was talking about this with my mother the other night you know I'm spending an hour a day or more on the phone with my with my parents facetiming frequently but also making phone calls and we were talking about how there used to be such a thing as long distance right you would be charged different rates for calling across state lines and things like that and if this had happened twenty years ago that would have ha- that would have been applicable and it's not anymore and so there are many ways in which the technological moment in which we find ourselves allows us to live in a moment of social distancing and lockdown with a kind of comfort that would have just been unthinkable to people even 50 years ago, 100 years ago, let alone Boccaccio and Chaucer. And yet, you know, I'm struck when I'm reading what's going on in hospitals, whether it's in Italy or or, or New York City. Families that cannot be present with their dying relative, you know, they, they can be present virtually through a, an iPad or, a, or a, an iPhone, but that the hollowness of that speaks for itself. And so we as a, as a, as a human community, we're going to have to, when, when the pandemic is finally done and the social distancing is over, I think we have to come up with a better calibration of, you know, what are the roles that technology can play in facilitating connection, but also a better appreciation for the, the genuine, the genuinely human contact, right? The unmediated, uh, face to face. We, we, we have in so many ways started to fall into digital surrogacy as a, as a kind of default mode of, of relating to one another. And I, I hope that this will call us back to having a renewed sense of what it means to be in community, to, to, to trust one another, to be vulnerable with one another, and to be present with one another at moments of, of, of strain and difficulty. Yeah, for sure. So I've been asking everybody in these interviews, what are maybe three things that you've been watching or listening to or reading that you find particularly helpful in these times? Yeah. So the things, uh, I mean, what I've been watching, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a super niche thing that if you have any Italians that, that listen, they'll, they might know it, but it's a t- Italian TV series called Boris, which was on the air from about 2009 to 12. And it's about the making of basically what would be an Italian telenovela. And the first week of the lockdown, I was really feeling a lot of pressure and, and anxiety, and I could feel my chest tightening up. I didn't know if it was the virus. And my wife and I uh, started rewatching the series, and for two hours, I didn't think about the pandemic, and it was just everything I needed at that moment. And it's it's making fun of trash television. It's about the production of this of this telenovela. It's it's really great, and and so I have found solace in a totally escapist uh, uh, TV show. Can just we watch to, it in English? Is it 
Uh, uh, I think there might be subtitles. I'll check on that. Uh, it, it definitely went on Sky, so I think there might be an international version of it. So I'll, where, I'll, where I'll have a look Where did you watch it? it? I watched it when I was living in Italy, and we watched it via a pirate streaming website. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Another thing that I've been reading is just... I decided to just read through Boccaccio, which I haven't done since I was an undergraduate. And so Boccaccio is really, for me, a great, you know, he's just such a great storyteller. And I wish I could tell a story the way that he does. And there, you know, it it sometimes can feel a little hokey when he's trying to find the moral in every story. And it's like, Come on, man. You just wanted to tell a good yarn here. You didn't, this, this one didn't have a moral in that way, but it's a lot of fun. And then I would say the third thing is that I've been reading, uh, The Historian's Craft by Mark Block. And, you know, man who wrote this book while hiding from the Nazis in, in, in France and then was eventually found and, and shot, uh, after being extensively tortured. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough book insofar as, you know, he didn't have all of the resources that he would have hoped to have. He didn't have his library. The quotes are, you know, what he's able to remember. And and Lefebvre, when he was pulling it together, had basically three different manuscripts. All of that said, you know, the way that he talks about the solidarity of the ages is is just, for me, really enlivening. And I'm trying, I'm reading this again to try to think about you know, what are the ways in which our job as professors is going to change? You know, there are logistical ways in which the university will change and we will have very little control over that, right? But I also think that we have agency in the way that we teach things, the way that we construct our syllabi, the way that we write the things about which we write. And so I'm just trying to think what are the ways in which uh, the solidarity of the ages can become more present in my own scholarly life and my own writing. And what does it mean to do history at a moment like this? So that's, you know, the, the sort of like major uh, intellectual work that I'm trying to do right now. And Mark Block is my, is my companion in that. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Well, Chris Nigren, so good to talk with you. It's been yeah. wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I hope to, to see you soon and give you a big hug. Likewise. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.